from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, what's up and good evening, America. I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And man, just when you thought, man, it's just the beginning of September and there's not a lot going on, people still in vacation mode, boom, you get this bombshell statement coming from Kemala Eris. That's right, Kamala Harris, the uh, vice president of the United States. And you know, when we talk about Vice President Harris, I love to play a little song that we have for her. Um, let's get that ready. I like to start it off with a little maracas. That's the Kamala Harris song. how bad Of course, that's the Kamala Harris theme song that we have here on the program. And because in Spanish, que mala eres means how bad she is. And just a reminder of how bad she is. She is literally the least favorite vice president in United States history insofar as we've had polls. Interesting, right? Well, she's got some audio that's been making its ways uh, around uh, the internet and around newsrooms and around the radio and around television. And I'm sure you've heard it and you're going to hear it again. And if you haven't heard it, hold on to your hats, folks. Make sure you buckle up if you're driving. Take a deep breath. This is interesting stuff because what Kamala Harris says, and I'm going to play the full version of it so that you can get everything, absolutely everything. But uh, listen to uh, this clip from Vice President Kamala Harris. Questions about the president's age often go hand in hand with questions about how you would step in the role, you know, if necessary. Do you feel prepared for that possibility? Uh, and serving as vice president prepared you for, for that job? Yes. Um, and how would you, you know, describe the, that, that process? Which process? Like as far as, you know, being ready for that, that, for that. Well, first of all, let's, I'm answering your hypothetical. Um, but Joe Biden's going to be fine. Right. So that is not going to come to fruition. But let us also understand that every vice president, every vice president, understands that when they take the oath, that they must be very clear about the responsibility they may have to take over the job of being president. I am no different. She's no different. Yes, she is. She's incredibly different. Vice President Kim Malaris. Listen to this. Just a couple of months ago, June, right? Middle of June. Uh, nearly half of the respondents of a poll by NBC News, they uh, found that 49% of those that responded to the poll had a negative view of Harris. 32% surveyed said they have a positive opinion. So this is a 49% uh, disapproval rating. Massive. This is a net negative rating of negative 17. It's the lowest net negative rating for a vice president in the history of the poll. Now, in uh, October of 2019, you had 38% of respondents that had a negative view, uh, while Vice President Pence 
in the previous administration had 34%, but that got lower and lower. So now she tells uh, this um, journalist in Jakarta that she is ready to step into the role of vice president. Now, just think about that for a second. When you hear hail to the chief, right? You're hearing that and you're expecting the triumphant entrance of the commander in chief and in walks. I mean, I think she should use our theme song to walk out to things. This is an interesting thing, but it couldn't have come at a better time. Why? Because as we head into the campaign season, all you can do is think this has got to help whoever the Republican is that runs against her, right? Just imagine selling this as vote for Joe Biden because you'll get que mala eres. Just imagine that. What a campaign slogan. I mean, it's, a, it's as if the Democrats want the Republicans to win. I, I just, I think, I'm excited about this. I've always told people, I think she's the best person to run against. I think Democrats don't like her. I think Joe Biden doesn't like her. I think Republicans don't like her. And I think 49% of Americans don't like her. And that sounds like a goody, uh, a really good person to run as a Democrat nominee. So Vice President K. Mala Eres, or let's, I don't know, let's be uh, hypothetical here. President K. Mala Eres, President Kamala Harris. Just, just imagine what that would be, uh, what that would be like, a, a Harris administration. You know, where they'd ask questions like, Madam President, why are we still giving money to Ukraine? We, we're not doing anything. The war isn't being won, yada, yada, yada. And her response would be, well, you have to think about things. And when you think about things, you kind of got to think. And when you're talking about things, we're talking about objects or ideas. And it's important for us to think because we must do first in order to think. And we must think first in order to do. And everybody's left scratching their heads saying, what, what did this woman just say? What kind of word salad are you giving us? That's Vice President Kim Malayadis because she says she's absolutely ready. I got to tell you. This is uh, like, what is that Chris Matthews said years ago? Sends a little shiver, chill down my leg. <laughs> yep, I think that would be golden. And yeah, I'm glad that the Democrats are introducing the idea that Joe Biden may not be well enough to run for president. Uh, Mitch McConnell's not well enough to be minority leader. There are people that need to take care of their health. John Fetterman, whomever is ill, be ill. Take your time, get better, and let the people have a representative. We really can't operate this way. And I, for one, I just I am thrilled about this. So I'm looking to see how this actually plays out. But tonight I want to get into a bunch of things. We're going to continue to talk about uh, Vice President Kemal Harris. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the latest with the uh, Trump case. Uh, one of the Mar-a-Lago workers uh, has been reported to have taken a non-prosecution agreement where he agrees to say something about Trump. Looks like he'll be flipping on Trump and saying, no, 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 he's guilty as sin. So we're going to find out about that in a little bit. I'll, I'll discuss the uh, the news on that. And also, big interview by Tucker Carlson today with Larry Sinclair. Now, I got to tell you, I could have sworn Larry Sinclair was dead. <laughs> I really did. I'm pretty sure I said that on the air. <clears throat> so forgive me. I'm retracting that statement. But I did believe that. I know Joan Rivers had also made some comments about Barack Obama's um, past and, and his previous um, trysts with with men that she alleged. And, and then I know she was uh, deceased shortly after she made those comments. And I could have sworn Larry Sinclair was gone. I'm, I'm glad he's not gone. But this is an old story, right? This story goes back to 2009. And he wrote a book about it and everything. 
And it's interesting to see that it's back. I don't know if it's back because it's an election year or it's back because there's new uh, found credibility for the story. Uh, but ultimately, I, I don't think Barack Obama really wins anything by, um, you know, admitting or denying any of this. I don't think anybody looks at him any different and goes, oh, so you're, you're into guys. OK, I, don't, I really don't think he loses anything. Whereas, pardon me, I have a frog in my throat or since I'm Puerto Rican, a coquille. Anyway, um, I, I think that somebody that would have gained from that, and I'm not saying that she is, but had Hillary Clinton as a October surprise said, and by the way, if you elect me, I'll be your first LGBTQ president because I, I, I also um, am with that lifestyle. I really do think that the, the tables would have turned and she would have become president of the United States because there was such momentum for that movement at that time. Uh, now the movement for LGBTQ, or, or I should say homosexuals, has kind of um, cooled. And now where it's hot is the acceptance of children that are transgender and teachers that are encouraging this behavior. And, you know, we talk about this on a daily basis. So, I mean, it, it's a little bit different part of the culture war. Uh, speaking of culture wars, Bill Gates has jumped back into the culture wars, and you won't believe what he bought for $100 million. It's pretty funny. But anyway, I want to talk about the conservative movement. I want to talk about media bias. And I want to talk about the recent passing of William F. Buckley, uh, you know, a, a godfather in the conservative movement here in America. And I mentioned it and we talked about it when uh, the, the, the evening that it was reported that he'd passed away. But I, I want to get into depth on that a little bit, as well as um, pick the brain of Brent Bozell. He's uh, president of the Media Research Center. And he happens to have been the uh, nephew of William F. Buckley. So we're going to talk about that as well straight ahead. Plus, we're going to get into uh, what is the correlation between beer and the Bible? And why is there so much empty office space in the D.C. swamp? We're going to cover all of that tonight, plus your calls and more straight ahead on America at Night with me, Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. America, welcome back. And I wanted to talk about uh, the recent passing of James L. Buckley, uh, of course, from uh, the family of William F. Buckley. And uh, to, to help us talk about that and media bias and uh, several other topics that I want to dig into is Brent Bozell. Now, William F. Buckley was Brent's uncle. And uh, Brent, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me again. It's my pleasure. You bet. I, I appreciate you staying up late with us. And I, I don't want to belabor it too much, but I wanted to make sure that we, we um, discussed uh, the legacy of uh, former Senator James L. Buckley, who recently passed a couple of weeks ago. And uh, my condolences to you, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. You know, he was um, uh, anybody who knew him would tell him, would tell you. Um, and I've heard more than one person say uh, he was not just a, a gentleman. 
he was a gentle man. Uh, while his brothers and sisters were in Africa shooting big wild animals, um, he was he was looking at birds and trees. Um, he was a big environmentalist. Um, he was soft-spoken. Um, they said of him that no matter what his title, he was always the last person on an elevator. Um, kind to a fault. Uh, an endless number of friends that he had, including Senator Pat Winahan. Uh, who defeated him in, in his re-election campaign. They became friends. Um, uh, but he was friends with everyone. Brilliant. Um, he was the only person alive uh, at the time of his death. He was the only person alive who was uh, who had served in all three branches of the federal government at an executive level. The only person in America. Wow. That is cool. Yeah, and of course, he served as as a judge and uh, as a senator, and and he was also a radio guy, which is pretty cool. Um, he was the president of Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty back in the 80s. Yeah, and didn't, didn't, didn't know a damn thing about radios. Um, <laughs> I mean, as, as, as his, his daughter uh, pointed out in, in a beautiful eulogy, um, he was he was so uh, out of touch with the pop popular culture that when he was running for the Senate, he went to a Mets game and turned to his wife and asked how many touchdowns they scored. Um, this this, <laughs> this this sounds like something I'd say. Jim. This was Jim. No, he was a he was a uh, uh, Bill Buckley. Of course, was the charismatic uh, one. But uh, for those who read National Review. They'll remember that he always referred to Jim as his saint, as the sainted junior senator from New York. Um, he got Jim to run in 1968, and he was defeated. And then in 1970, he ran again, this time as an independent. And I think other than Bernie Sanders, he's the only independent that's won the Senate in, in forever. Um, uh, he, he won in a three-man race. Uh, he had a very distinguished uh, one term in in Congress. He was the one who changed the election laws with uh, Buckley versus Baleo. He had a very vibrant, the very first right to life uh, uh, legislation uh, and a whole bunch of conservation ones. And I thought perhaps his biggest, um, uh, most important move was he was the first Republican to call on Richard Nixon to resign. Wow. Well, I, I just, uh, again, I want to tip my hat to uh, former Undersecretary of State for International Security Affairs and Judge and Senator uh, James L. Buckley, because it's quite a storied career that, that he led. And it's, um, you know, you mentioned something about him that I think was very unique at the time. A lot of people were friendly with um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan or even Tip O'Neill and Reagan. And it was very common to have these friendships. And I think some of these friendships still exist today. But the issues have become more polarized, right? So back then it was kind of easy to be friends with people. I think easier because people agreed, well, you know, we're all Americans at the end of the day. And, you know, we're all kind of against communism. We're all kind of pro-America, America first, if you will. And that doesn't seem to be the case today. Today it seems that, you know, there's been a really leftward lurch in the Democrat Party. And and the media, which you know really well, has really kind of um, just participated in a very active uh, uh, cover up, as you pointed out recently, uh, of what's going on, whether it's with the Biden administration, whether it's what's actually happening. And and the American people are kind of left in the dark. 
You know, it's, it's a very good point that you're making. When, uh, Ronald Reagan used to talk about Kip O'Neill and, and, and say, you know, they, they, were, they were mortal enemies uh, during the day. But there were two Irishmen, and he said, I can have a beer with them at, at, after work. Um, <laughs> they, they had that kind of comedy. Um, there's no way you can do that today. Um, I, I once asked Jim of, um, in the three branches of government, which one did he enjoy the most? And he said the Senate because of the camaraderie uh, and because of the thoughtfulness of the Senate. We have none of that left today. And here's the interesting thing. Um, the media point this out as being, you know, they, they talk about the far right. Uh, they never talk about the far left, but they always talk about the far right. And here's the reality, which if you look at what the Republican Party stands for, especially in the Congress today, it is far to the left of Ronald Reagan, far to the left. Look at fiscal policy to begin with. Ronald Reagan oh, yeah. slashed taxes slash spending except for defense uh had a, you know fought for a balanced budget the republicans are letting an out of control deficit occur and even if the democrats are in charge the republicans go along with it we've got to be honest about this they have on on issue after issue ronald reagan was far more conservative than the republicans today the same holds true for the Democrats, and that's the key. I, I never thought that I would look forward, I would look back to the good old days of George McGovern and Ted Kennedy. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, they were radicals in their day, but you just wonder what they would think about these socialists that are out of control. And I'll tell you something else, and, 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 and it's not a comfortable thing for me to say, but I do believe that Democrats have become truly anti-American, and I can throw them back. I believe you. And I want to get into more on your comments on this uh, cover up of uh, the Biden family and everything that's going on there with new uh, information coming out about Hunter Biden and a new indictment coming his way. Folks, we're on with Brent Bozell, president of the MRC Media Research Center. We're coming right back. Don't move a muscle. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Named one of the best personal finance podcasts, The Stacking Benjamin Show with Joe and his friends makes financial literacy fun. I got an email today from the LenPenzo.com HR department. I find oh. it really interesting. I'm an employee of one at this company, so but somebody from the HR department sent me an email telling me that I had a raise. If I just opened the attachment, I could see how much my raise was. Make sure you click on the links that are in there, too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can't wait. This is I'm excited. Find out more by searching the Stacking Benjamins podcast wherever you listen. America at Night with Rich Valdez. What do you take from the text message to his adult daughter, uh, Hunter's text message, that I have to give 50% of my income to Pop? I have no idea what that means. I don't. I have no idea what that means. Well, it's, 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 it's. It, I know. It's circumstantial evidence and you prefer that. No, what, what, what could it be? I, I have no idea. But doesn't it, I don't know. Well, did, I appreciate that, your, has anybody, has anybody asked her? I, I don't know. I don't know. Don't you think somebody should ask her? Okay. 
Like I, I'm not, I just said, I don't know. And I don't know what to make of it. So I have nothing yeah, but, to say uh, about it. Yeah, what, but do, what do you it, want me to say? Yeah, but you say there's no evidence, no evidence. But then there's a text message where he says, I give pop 50% of my money. That's, that's evidence. Okay. Well, what do you, okay, fine. Fine. So it's evidence. I appreciate you having me on. It doesn't, it, that something like that. Who do you think is the more? I, I listen to that. And I'm saying, am okay, I, am I, what, okay, you, you can free you, to go. I, think, I feel you want me to leave, like just walk out in the middle of this because that go. way you can, you, like, can you can go. Right. Is this a standard? Really? This is the way the Washington post handles people who disagree yeah, when with I, when them. I agree to be on for 45 minutes go, go, and then go. I get on for an hour and 15. Yeah. Go, that after a while go, I go. go. Thanks go. for having me. <laughs> okay. So that's uh Philip bump from the Washington post. Uh, he was on the uh, table podcast last week and uh, he got up and walked away when he was confronted with evidence uh, that Biden received money from Hunter's business dealings. And it's interesting how, you know, some podcast folks and some radio programs are covering this and some of the conservative networks. But, you know, the big networks, uh, ABC, NBC, CNN, even cable networks, none of them seem to be covering uh, the the ins and outs of this, right? The fact that the laptop was real, that there are emails, there's there's so much stuff out there that should be scrutinized at the very, very least. And that doesn't seem to be happening. Well, our guest, uh, Brent Bozell, president of the Media Research Center, uh, he's had some interesting comments uh, uh, addressing why there has been zero network coverage. Brent Bozell, welcome back. Hi, uh, Rich. You know, it, it's so interesting. Uh, the, it's an old, it's an old trick that the Democrats have used. You know, this is, uh, this is Bill Clinton did it. Uh, Hillary Clinton did it. Barack Obama did it. Now Joe Biden is doing it. If there's the slightest hint of negative press coming, they complain that the media are too rough and the media head for the tall grass. Every single time it happens, mm-hmm. and it's happening again because there have been a couple of stories about his age that have come out. And so they're running. So that clip you showed is exactly how the media are reacting to it. Let me give you, if I can, some mm-hmm. statistics on this. And I think that your, your listeners may be surprised because conservatives believe that, that the public knows. And I can tell you in a minute, I'll, I'll, I'll explain if you like what impact this reporting had on the last election. Okay, here we go. On May 9th, the New York Post confirmed that Hunter Biden had taken $20 million from the Kazakhs, the Romanians, the Ukrainians, the Russians, and the Chinese, our mortal enemies. Mm. Network news coverage, zero. On June 8th, Fox News, Fox News confirmed that Joe Biden had taken $5 million from Burisma. Network news coverage, zero. Then Congressman James Comer came out with a report saying that the Biden family had been hiding this money through a web of 20 LLCs that exist for no reason other than to hide money. And they couldn't show any work that was performed for the $20 million. Network news coverage, zero. On August 17th, the New York Post came out with a story showing that President Biden was using the Robert Peters alias. <laughs> Network news coverage, zero. The same day, James Comer released his report showing that Joe Biden was using numerous aliases. Network news coverage, zero. Then there was the infamous voicemail to a confirmation about Joe guy, Biden being confirmed that he was the big guy. In, in, in the Hunter Biden laptop where he was going to get 10% on a deal with communist China. Network news coverage, zero. You have to ask, ask yourself, what might Hunter Biden's business partner 
be doing in the White House? Then it was reported he's been there 19 times. Network news coverage, zero. And my favorite, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg admitting the FBI pressured Facebook in 2020 to suppress coverage of the Hunter Biden scandal. Network news coverage, zero. And maybe it's because they didn't cover it either. Absolute insanity. Uh, and it's just, I guess, if, if we don't talk about it, it never happened is, is their idea. Uh, but I think the American people are, are hip to this because there's other ways of getting information. And there's great organizations like MRC that are out there putting out this information. Do, do you and think there are radio can, shows like yours. Well, amen to that. Yeah. And do you think that they can continue to put their head in the sand and and pretend this isn't happening or get up and walk out of interviews? Uh, reporters like Philly Bump from the uh, Washington Post, do, do you think they can keep pulling that off and get away with it? You know, uh, I don't know, but they're going to try. Um, our, our, w- when you do, when you have this kind of record, no, every single one of those uh, inflection points, were it Donald Trump or George Bush 45 or Bush, George Bush 43 or Ronald Reagan or Richard Nixon or anyone else, every single one of those inflections would have gotten the Brett Kavanaugh treatment, which is to say breaking news. Joe Biden confirmed took $5 million from the Chinese. Breaking news. This mm-hmm. Hunter's business partner was in the White House 19 times. You know, breaking news, breaking news, breaking news. So when they put a, a deliberate, this is, this is deliberate. This is the network saying we're just not going to give Donald Trump any chance whatsoever when this is what this is what the whole thing's all about so they will let this man who is half senile and i don't mean that in a disparaging way i mean that in a quite serious way who is half senile in the as the leader of the free world with his thumb on the nuclear button because they don't want donald trump 100 percent right and and even the coverage on Trump, I feel, is incredibly skewed. Let me just remind the audience of um, what's going on here. Folks, we're on with Brent Bozell. He's the founder and president of the Media Research Center, the MRC, MRC Latino, uh, Newsbusters.org. I mean, there's so much work that they do, uh, excellent work that they, they produce. If you're not checking out those websites, you're missing out. And we're going to continue our conversation with Brent Bozell, as well as your calls, if you want to join in on the conversation, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Well, thank you, Rich, and thank you for everything. I know you very well, and I have I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen, and they love your show, and I appreciate it very much. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're on with Brent Bozell, founder and president of the Media Research Center, and we're just talking about media bias and how um, the Biden camp complains that it's unfair to them while they're getting a sweetheart deal left and right. 
Yet the person that really is getting a raw deal uh, is, I think, the coverage of Trump. There's lots of things that are being hidden from the coverage of of Trump and uh, the multiple uh, phony indictments. Brent Bozell, what's your take on what's going on with the TV news coverage of the 2024 campaign? Boy, boy, let, well, let's go back to the 2020 one for a second, because sure. here we, we've been talking about the cover up of the Joe Biden record as president. The exact same thing happened with Donald Trump when he was president, except Donald Trump had an endless stream of accomplishments when he was president. Right. We tracked it month after month after month, starting in May 2015. Every single month, 89% negative, 92% negative, 98% negative. One month, 100% negative news coverage of Donald Trump. So when they're attacking him 97% of the time, they're only giving 3% of airtime to anything good about him. So the guy had an endless number of, of, of accomplishments. So, so how important was that? We did a survey at the end of the elections going into the six swing states, the battleground states of Arizona, Georgia, um, uh, Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. And Donald Trump won North Carolina, lost every other state. We asked Biden voters a series of questions. Did you know X? Then we said, if you didn't know, would you have voted for Joe Biden had you known? And then we took that number and we took it, put it across the, the, state, the states to see what happened. We asked questions such as, did you know that America had become energy independent? 50% of Democrats didn't know it. We asked, did you know that Kamala Harris had a voting record to the left of Bernie Sanders, a socialist? Um, 49% of the public didn't know it. Same thing. Did we ask, we asked, did you know that Donald Trump had been recommended for three Nobel Peace Prizes? Not one, not two, but three. We asked, did you know that the GDP had grown 11, uh, uh, 30% in the last two months before the election? 30%. Did you know that 11 million jobs had been, had been, had been created in that time period? But here's the big one. Here's the big one. We asked, did you know about the Hunter Biden laptop? Now, every conservative, every Republican knows about the Hunter Biden. And we all assumed that everybody knew about it. When we polled Biden's voters, get this number, 45.1% of Biden's voters had never heard of the Hunter Biden laptop. Now, remember now, Mark Zuckerberg admitted Facebook censored it. We know because of Elon Musk buying it, Twitter censored it, but we also know because we track it, the networks barely covered it, barely touched it, and then dismissed it when they did. So what does that, what does that mean? We asked of the Biden voters who didn't know about it, would they have voted for Joe Biden had they known? 9.4% of Biden's voters said they wouldn't. You put that 9.4% across the battleground states, Donald Trump would have trounced him in every single down, uh, battleground state, would have won a minimum of 317 electoral votes, a landslide victory, if the media had only reported the Hunter Biden story, just reported it. That's how important this is. Unbelievable. And, and I mean, it, it just doesn't stop there. I mean, you've got... Uh, several prosecutors that are coming after Trump, all of which 
have an interesting background and in how they were appointed, what they represent, their their ties to all sorts of uh, different things. And it's just remarkable to me that the media gets away with this. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for Newsbusters and your organization for calling them out and doing these surveys and putting these things out there. But it, it seems like people don't even know the history of, of Jack Smith or Funny Willis or Alvin Brown. No. No, it's, it's, you know, it's easy to expose the bias by commission where somebody twists something, but the bias by omission where it's not reported at all. That's a tough hold to, 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 to look. All these Democrats, the, the, these uh, attorneys generals that are going after Donald Trump, it's barely mentioned. They are all liberal Democrats, most of them supported by people like George Soros. Barely mentioned at all. These people have agendas. Folks, if you don't know what's going on, you got to go on the MRC cruise so that you can enjoy the cruise <laughs> and find out what's going on. Check them out at mrccruise.com. Uh, Brent Bozell, uh, I, I want to wrap up with you. You've been generous with your time, and I appreciate it. Uh, for, if people want to find out more about the work that you guys are doing, how do they um, find you? How do they you know, um, engage? We have a number of websites, but I, I urge you to go to to Newsbusters to see what, what what we have, and you can sign up at Newsbusters or go to MRC.org and sign up there. Uh, you know, obviously we don't do anything with your name, uh, but sign up and be, become part of a movement that stands up to the to the networks and to social media. They're even more important. The web of the cone of silence that they're putting on on everybody is even more important. You still don't know. We saw, by the way, after Elon Musk took over X. Censorship got actually got worse. People don't realize that. He took care of it, but it actually got worse for a while. I mean, it was the underlings who are running the censorship campaigns in, in these sites. Google, YouTube, all of them are participating in it. They're doubling down. Folks, go to newsbusters.org. Check out the work that Brent Bozell and the team at MRC are doing. Brent Bozell, you're a gentleman, a patriot, and a scholar. I really appreciate the conversation and hope to do it again soon. It's always my pleasure. Thank you. You bet. Folks, we're going to come right back and continue this conversation, plus your calls and more. 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833 valdez that's Valdez with an S. glad to be on your show, Rich. It's just an amazing broadcast that I hope the rest of America listens to every day. America at Night with Rich Valdez. Trump has said he would leave open the door to pardoning a lot of the people who were convicted that day. I mean, does that, does the fact that 
domestic terror is now a part of this change that calculus, you think? I don't think it's going to stop Trump from saying what he's been saying. He's been fundraising to try to help some of the defendants in January 6th related cases. I don't think that this will uh, have him adjust anything. I'm sure his lawyers would like it if he would adjust some of what he's saying and doing. But I don't think for what he is saying himself, he sees political advantage in continuing to say that he might pardon people. He thinks that it, it rallies his supporters. That's Maggie Haberman from The New York Times on CNN yesterday with Caitlin Collins. And again, just another example of how the, um, as Trump would call them, the fake news media, how they get together and they have these discussions. And I was just during the break telling um, our, our producer in the control room that there is no equivalent on on the right of what Maggie Haberman does, right? She, she's a like a political hitman, right? Every piece she writes is designed to not only throw shade and cast dispersions, but moreover, to really just dissect and take apart and destroy whatever is good, right? Anything to, to, to hurt the other side. It's not reporting. It, it's like uh, like an attack ad, if you will. They should probably bill her and uh, put the, her, her writing as a uh, political contribution to the Democrat Party. But this to me, opens the um, the door to uh, a piece on Newsbusters because th- there's a piece on Newsbusters from today. The media hides the Democrats, or I should say the, the D behind their name, when covering those that are prosecuting Trump. So while they want to talk about Trump raising money and Trump doing this and Trump saying he's going to pardon the January 6th defendants, and again, Trump is saying that, while there may be a clear political advantage and it may rally the base, there's a bigger reason. And I think the bigger reason is that you've got a lot of people. Brandon Strzok, who was on this program, never went inside the Capitol and was held in jail for a number of weeks. Um, and so many others that were charged with uh, excessively and arrested in, in a very aggressive manner that it was inconsistent with what they'd done. And I'm talking about the charges of parading and trespassing, not the people that were breaking the windows and fighting with the cops and all that, but charging all of these people with these these very serious crimes and lowering these crimes and giving them very simple charges that, you know, parading, you know, so in effect, you know, unauthorized parade and, and getting jail time. Some of the, the early on defendants were very, very elderly that didn't know what was going on and they were just, you know, trying to go and do what they did. They weren't trying to bum rush the Capitol. But they were, um, you know, they, they were held. And, and it's just, it's very unfortunate. But listen to this. When it comes to the 2024 campaign, and of course the coverage from uh, from the left, from ABC, CBS, NBC, uh, the cable affiliates, was it's all dominated by Trump's legal cases, which again are fabricated to do exactly that, to, to give a black eye to the campaign, to make him spend money and time away from the campaign, and on his legal defense. But some of the things they found in, in their reporting, listen to this, 97.9 of the stories failed to identify special counsel Jack Smith as selected by Democrat Attorney General Merrick Garland. 88.4% of the stories failed to identify uh, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg as a Democrat. 93.3 of their stories failed to identify Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Funny Willis as a Democrat, she also has ties to the Black Panther Party. And uh, back when and her dad served with the Black Panthers when they were like a legit terror organization. I mean, so much to discuss and so little time. Anyway, we'll continue the discussion straight ahead. I'm Rich Valdez. 
Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening, wherever you listen. From the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America's favorite late night talk program. Featuring interesting guests from around the world. And calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, your liberty-loving Latino amigo, and I'm happy to be here with you guys this Wednesday evening. Our phone number, if you want to join our late-night national town hall conversation, feel free to give us a call, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And there's so much to discuss in the news, right? Lots of headlines that are out there today. Uh, Ex-Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot is now getting paid to teach students how to run a city in crisis. (laughs) Just imagine that. If that's not a waste, I don't know what is. The uh, federal budget deficit is projected to double this year, um, you know, outpacing uh, its its previous rate uh, or pace, I should say. And it's it's, it's a bad thing. It's it's a really bad thing. We'll get into that a little bit later. And there's um, there's tons on government waste that's out there. I mean, if you're thinking of, you know, using Lori Lightfoot as an example to run a city in crisis, this is a waste. And government waste is a real thing. The U.S. government wastes billions of dollars every single year. The The U.S. has lost almost $24.4 trillion in simple payment errors over the last two decades. $2.4 trillion. That's, that's an astronomical number. And there's some oversight reports that claim that billions more are being wasted every year on needless programs, uh, duplicative programs, etc. And there's watchdog groups out there, and, and those are important. We need those because there's a ton of waste. And one of the things that's being wasted is government buildings, right? There's a whole bunch of them. And sadly, the... Uh, you know, post-COVID experience for many people, a lot of people are back in the office, but then there's still people in the government who are just enjoying this work from home type of uh, scenario. And what is going on with all of this empty space? Well, we're going to find out. Uh, I want to welcome our guest, Grover Norquist. You know him. He's been on before, president of Americans for Tax Reform. And uh, he's going to tell us a little bit about what's up with all the empty buildings in the swamp. Grover Norquist, welcome back, sir. Uh, it's not a cheerful topic, uh, but the Government <laughs> Accountability Office, the GAO, they do studies and try and see if they can get the government to uh, recognize error and become more efficient. So they were asked by Congress, uh, Sam Graves, the Republican congressman from Missouri, held a hearing on the matter, but first he wanted to get the facts. 
Uh, so GAO went out. They, they sampled 24 agency headquarters, okay? 24 different ones. Most, <clears throat> more than half of them, were under 25% capacity. That means for every four offices that used to hold somebody, there was one or less than one person in those four. Um, most agencies were under 25%. A number were under 10%, which means 90% empty, 90% uh, empty. Now, when you don't have everybody at the building, you still pay full price for air conditioning, heating, maintenance, security. Uh, the security guards have to show up. Uh, and when GAO went out, looked at everything, one of the things they found was the bureaucrats, these are, these are the agency heads, by the way, this is the, the, the building that runs the federal, you know, the, the, the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission or all these FDA, all these various right. agencies. This is not out in the field where maybe it doesn't matter too much or it's only screwing up one state. This is the head of the whole place. Um, and they didn't want to get to allow these leases to end and stop pay, have the taxpayers stop paying for it because they really liked their name on a building. And the idea that if only a quarter of the rooms are filled, perhaps you could take four buildings and put them into one building and right. save the cost of leases on three huge buildings and the heating and the security and everything else. No, they really, really wanted their name on a building because it was a matter of status. It mattered to them that way. The, the, the hearing that they had uh, was entitled, I love this, When the Lights Are On But No One's Home, an Examination <laughs> of Federal Office Space Utilization. So GAO is a government agency, and it's doing its job in looking into this stuff. Um, these are the agencies, six of them that they looked at, that averaged 9% of the headquarters, so less, percent of, less than 10% of the headquarters staff. You may recognize some of these agencies. The Department of Agriculture, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the General Services Administration, the people who oversee all of uh, the, the leases <laughs> that they should be canceling, right? They're not showing up for work. They're not even at the work. Office of, no, the Office of Personnel Management, who manage all the personnel that aren't coming to work. The Small Business Administration, well, I suppose it's smaller <laughs> now that nobody's showing up for work. Uh, and if your Social Security check, you having any problem there? The Social Security Administration of the headquarters. Again, not, not some field office. You know, maybe nobody's looking because it's in Wyoming. This is the headquarters in D.C. Nine uh, percent or less of the people who technically work, air quotes, uh, work mm -hmm. for the Social Security Administration. Uh, people, the agencies that have less than 16% filled up. So 80%, 84% not there. Department of Education explains a lot. Department of Transportation. This one, Department of Veterans Affairs. You think we could do a little better by our veterans. Um, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA. Okay, it takes fewer people to send men up to space than it used to, evidently. Um, I mean, 23%, okay, Department of Defense. 23% are showing up. Department of Energy, uh, Health and Human Services, Department of Interior, Labor, uh, USAID. Uh, these, these are real numbers. Oh, the federal government, by the way, owns 511, 511 million square feet of office space. Wow. They could 
save if they canceled some of these leases. And by the way, number of these leases are ending in the next couple of years. So they could plan for that now. Right now, there are no plans to do any of that. This is amazing, Grover Norquist, because, again, we, we, we know that the government screws things up. And if you want to screw something up, hire people from the government to run it. But when you look at this, uh, you're talking about buildings that are more than 50 percent empty. You said some as much as 90 percent empty leases that are about to expire. And to me, this sounds like um, just a, a very lazy way to do business. Right. If this were the private sector everybody would be looking for a cost-cutting measure because, I mean, there's nothing but office space that's available right now in the real estate market, and nobody wants it because there's an abundance of it. And you would think if the government could unload some, they would. Uh, to me, this is the epitome of, of just lazy uh, planning. It, it, am I being too generous and just calling this lazy planning, or is, is there something more nefarious at play? Nefarious, but it's, they're not taking this Seriously, they're spending other people's money and they just don't care. It's already in their budget. It doesn't cost them anything. They like the idea of a big building with their name on it, Department of Interior. Um, it makes them feel important. And so they just, they don't consider keeping costs down to be part of what they do. Now, for a company, um, big or small, that's one of the things they do all the time. How could we save money? How could we spend less money? Uh, the, the, the government's not playing with their own money, so it doesn't occur to them that this is important. ESA's um, General Service Administration leases um, uh, expire between 2023 and 2027. So they could drop in half the amount of the rooms they have. They're not insisting people come back. They, they DC, I live in Washington, DC. Um, and uh, DC, the government here is going, could, could the federal government please, Hey, Mr. Biden, could you make everybody come to work so that they'd <laughs> come in and use the office space and go to restaurants and, and, and buy gas in DC and those sorts of things. And Biden goes, no, not, not on our list of things to do having people show up at work. How much work do you think it's done when now for years people have been calling it in? Yeah. Uh, if you've ever tried to get the IRS to answer the phone, um, the, you know, the number of times that they pick up the phone. I, I had a challenge I don't know, about a year ago, and I would call several days in a row, and it would ring for, I don't know, half an hour. And then someone would come on and say, call back tomorrow. You know, at least the airlines go, hey, we'll be there in a minute. I mean, they're not necessarily telling the truth. We'll be there with you. Hang on. We'll be right. there. We'll be there. No, they, all they do is they not call tomorrow. Not, not we'll be with you shortly. Call tomorrow. They could have told me that in first three minutes if they're really not answering the phones. But at least the guy's not answering the phones out in the backyard in the swimming pool. We're talking about waste, fraud, and abuse in our federal government. And again, not breaking news. But this is very interesting. Uh, folks are on with Grover Norquist. He's uh, president of Americans for Tax Reform. And I want to continue this conversation. I also want to add to the conversation with the uh, recent call for eliminating income tax uh, in Oklahoma. And there's already a number of states that don't collect this, uh, income tax. And this is a big issue because I think this would really change the lives of a lot of Americans if more states adopted something like this. So we'll jump into that in a moment. Um, 
We're coming right back with Grover Norquist from Americans for Tax Reform. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Welcome back. And while the bureaucrats in Washington are wasting money and re-signing leases for office space that is not inhabited by anybody, as if we didn't need people to show up to work, people keep phoning it in. And that's what's happening with the folks in the swamp. But out there in the states, you've got some very proactive governors that are saying, you know what, we're trying to save people money instead of waste their money. Instead of spending uh, other people's tax dollars, we want to take less of their dollars in taxes. And one of those governors is uh, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, who was recently on on Fox, and he was uh, basically leading the charge, saying, over the next decade, is a quote, over the next decade, you can put your state on the path to zero. He's talking about income tax. And that's my effort. That's why I'm trying to get that done through the state legislature, end quote. And that's uh, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt trying to uh, eliminate income tax in the state of Oklahoma, which, of course, would get a lot of people to move to Oklahoma, right, just like people move to Texas and to Florida. So I want to bring back our guest. Uh, he's the president of Americans for Tax Reform, Grover Norquist. And I know that you guys have covered this uh, at ATR, but I think it's an important topic because, like I said, there's there's – those in the swamp, the bureaucrats that are just destroying things and spending money that isn't theirs and adding to, to the problem. And then you've got uh, enterprising governors like this one that are trying to remedy the problem and put money back in the pockets of uh, his constituents, Grover Norquist. Oh, absolutely. And uh, Governor Kevin Stitt is a real hero for taxpayers, present governor of Oklahoma. And he is one of 12 Republican governors that have announced we are going to zero. So they're of the 50 states, seven are at zero now. There is no state income tax in Texas or Florida or Tennessee uh, and states like Nevada and uh, Wyoming and South Dakota and, and Alaska uh, and Washington state. And so there's, se- there's seven states with no income tax, but there are 12 that are on the way. North Carolina has been going in this direction with tremendous leadership uh, for the last 11 years. They're about to pass a law which triggers it down. The way they're doing it, what, what Oklahoma is looking to do and, and uh, North Carolina has done, is they say, here's what we're going to spend. And they draw a line and they say, that's how much. And when income to the state, tax income, uh, pokes its head above that number, uh, we then cut the personal income tax by a certain amount, half a point or something, as it goes down. And so they never get ahead of their skis. Uh, they don't end up being short revenue compared to what they're going to spend, but they do discipline spending. Joining North Carolina, uh, Kentucky has passed a law in the next 10 years. They phased down to zero. Uh, they did it over, overriding the governor's veto there. In West Virginia, they have voted that in the next 10 to 12 years, they're going to ratchet down 
to zero. Uh, Iowa uh, has a tremendous uh, governor who has uh, clicked it down from 8.6%. That's pretty high, Iowa. It's going down to 3.99, and then it's going, and then in January, she's announced, and the Senate and the House leader have agreed, we're going to go down to zero. Next door in Nebraska, they're paying attention to what happened in Iowa. They've got, said we're going to go down to about 3.9 to be competitive with Iowa, and then we're going to zero. Uh, Arizona's went from 4.5 to 2.5. That's where they are now, 2.5%. Wow. They're going down to zero. Uh, they're going to put it on the ballot because they have a Democratic governor who won't help, but they'll put it on the ballot to phase it down to zero over the next several years. North Dakota uh, did a significant cut. They went down to two rates from seven, uh, and then they're – going to go down to one and then to zero. The governor, Burgum, gentleman is running for president. He has a good reason to run for president. He's phasing his income tax down to zero. That's going well. North New Hampshire, they have a tax on dividends and interest. That will be gone in one and a half years. So there will be one and a quarter years. It'll be, there will be completely income tax free. Uh, Mississippi, the governor and the House leader are committed to going to zero. They've taken it down to 4% flat rate, but they need to go, they plan to go down to zero. Louisiana has been phasing down uh, and will be able to go to zero over the next 12 years. And our friends in South Carolina just started, but they, the governor there said, guys, we're going to zero. Uh, and they've begun the process there. So if you're in a state, no, Ohio is going to go to a single rate tax. And then to zero, again, the uh, governor and the state legislatures there are working together. There are 12 states that are looking to go to zero. And I would say in the next 15 years, they'll be joined by states like Kansas, uh, which is going to a single rate tax uh, and then wishes to go to zero. They have a governor who's not helping, but they have two thirds, both houses, Republicans. So they'll be able to uh, move that forward. Uh, I think there are quite a number of states now. You'll be able to walk from wherever you are into a state with no uh, that has no income tax over the next 15 years. That's going to be very nice competition between the states to keep taxes low for everybody. Huge step uh, forward. Competition is excellent. I think it's fantastic. It keeps everybody on their toes, and it, it, it always helps the uh, end user, in this case, the taxpayer. Now, Grover, Federalism. Now, yeah. yeah, amen to that. Let's talk uh, in the minute or so we have remaining. Uh, how did how did you get involved in being a watchdog for for taxpayers? Well, I, when I was very young, uh, our teacher, school teacher, said, uh, "Democracy is a fraud. Nobody knows who they're voting for. Nobody knows the name of their state legislator." And I said, "Well, that's probably true, but what if?" we were to brand the modern Republican Party as the party that would never raise your taxes. Then you could, and, and, and that you could have state legislators and mayors and governors and presidents take a pledge never to raise taxes, which is what I did when I got older, was got the Taxpayer Protection Pledge out to people. Mm -hmm. uh, that would brand the party and make it easier for people to know what they were voting for or against. Outstanding. Folks, check out Grover Norquist and Americans for Tax Reform at ATR.org. Grover Norquist, thank you, sir. Thank you. Take care. You're a gentleman, a scholar, and a patriot, and I thank you for staying up late. Folks, more to come straight ahead. What does beer have to do with the Bible? We're going to find out next.
America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And I saw the uh, article sent to me, and it was interesting. Uh, the The headline was, Wine O'Clock, Women's Problems with Drinking are Catching Up to Men's. And uh, the women are now closing a gender gap, but it's not a good one. They're catching up to men in, when it comes to problematic drinking. And this uh, phenomenon of women drinking is on the rise. It's been on the rise for the last two decades, and it jumped during the pandemic as women reported more stress. Now, of course, men still drink more alcohol than women and have higher alcohol-related uh, mortality rates. But doctors and public health officials say that women are narrowing that divide. And I want to find out more about that because there's an increase in hospitalizations and deaths and all sorts of things. And I want to bring in uh, our guest to help us make sense of it, uh, Irvin Lee. He uh, is a former addict who now leads a faith-based recovery program called From Beer to the Bible. So I want to get to that maybe in the next segment about the name. I think that's fascinating. But let's talk about Wine O'Clock. Irvin Lee, welcome, sir. Hey, thank you for having me on, and thank you for uh, talking about the depressing issue that is affecting women, but also our society overall. Yeah, I agree with that, brother. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting thing, and and again, I think when I think of drinking, you know, just media, entertainment, or whatever, you you typically see guys drinking, and uh, that that seems to there seems to be a shift in that um, as of late like probably like the article states in the last uh, two decades or so where there's more women drinking. And uh, I, I never knew the the facts on it, but looking at this, it's, it's fascinating to me that this is happening because uh, there's a lot of problems that arise from alcohol and we can get into that a little bit later, but let's talk about how, um, how this is happening. Is it just the pandemic or is there more to it? There is more to it. I'm going to walk you through the variables of it. And I'm going to date myself here just a little bit. When I was growing up, it was not ladylike for a woman to be seen drunk or to have more than one or two drinks. But through the media, television, and now the advent of social media, it has not only normalized women getting drunk, but also women binge drinking. Mm. And the other variable in the equation is mental health. I'm meaning stress and anxiety because women are now, they hold positions, jobs, families. And to be honest with you, there is uh, an epidemic of people not being able to have healthy coping mechanisms for stress, anxiety, and the pressures of life. Listen, I, I believe that one 100%, and I think that's probably the, the root cause of a lot of things in life, is people not, you know, A, they don't know what they don't know, and B, they don't know how to do what they need to do. Uh, oftentimes, they don't have the skills or the practical approach to do it, so I think you're spot on with that. So would you say that uh, that's the, uh, the leading cause and not the pandemic, or is the pandemic solely responsible for a spike over the last two years? But this trend has been going on for the last 20 years. So do you think that women are neglecting themselves in a mental health capacity, not getting the therapy they need, not uh, dealing with um, self-care or putting a focus on self-care? Or is it something more like um, just um, 
you know, the advertising of it, the the feminist movement saying, you know, if guys can do it, you can do it, uh, or is it a combination of all that? It's going to be a combination of all that. And for women, when they start to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol, they are much less likely than their male counterparts to seek treatment. They do not seek treatment, and then they are impacted physically more quickly and more drastically than their male counterparts. So I think it's a combination of that. And then we have this other phenomenon where everyone lives their best life on Instagram. I'm going to say social (laughs) media, right? So they see, yes. So they see these women who really all they do is work out their bodies, their looks, their lives on Instagram is perfect. And it creates self-doubt, even in some cases, self-hatred. And then it creates a discontent in them and in their soul. And then they start to self-medicate. And before you know it, they are into drug and alcohol addiction, uh, just trying to numb the pain from the dissatisfaction that they, you know, feel in their lives and within themselves. And a lot of it is driven by this comparison of people living their best lives on Instagram. I don't. Uh, consume people's Instagrams because what I found, even myself, I'm going, man, I'm I'm really not living. I don't know anybody <laughs> who has a bad social media life. I just don't. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's funny. You spend some time on Instagram and you start thinking, why why am I not climbing a mountain in, you know, <laughs> in Africa? Yeah. Or something? Why am I not in Greece? Why am I not in Greece? Why am I not in Madrid? All these places. And I just honestly, and I found myself, I said, man, you have got to just post and ghost. And I only post around the work that we do in helping others. I cannot absorb and get caught up in anyone's Instagram life. I think that's a good point. I, I think it, it's overlooked. And I know it's, we hear about it a lot. People are always talking yep. about how... Um, Social media is leading to divorces. It's leading to, but the reality is, I think when we hear the term social media, we think of it as like a hobby, something you do at a red light, something you do on your lunch break, you know, some sort of pastime. It's almost like watching TV now, but it really is more than that because I think it's so immersive that you are able to communicate with people. You're able to keep up with your friends from back in the days. Everybody's using it as a highlight reel, which I think is a good thing. You don't want to go out there and say, hey, I had a horrible day today. You know, I just lost my job. I mean, some people do that, but I, I think people don't want to wallow in their misery. They want to celebrate success, and that makes sense. But that eventually, I, I agree with you, tr- uh, translates into many people feeling uh, left out or what they call FOMO, fear of missing out, and they're like, man, I'm, I'm not doing yeah. enough. <laughs> right? Not enough is going yeah. on. So as women yeah. are doing this, and, and, and you know, and, and again, many women, I think, despite um, the, the movement of feminism over the, the last several decades, I think women are still, by and large, even if they're not married anymore, uh, they, they have a, uh, a primary responsibility with children. Uh, I think more women, mm-hmm. you know, are, are moms to their children than, than dads are, especially if there's a divorce situation. And it gives them less opportunity to go out and hit the club or go to the bar like like many men might do. So they end yep. up self-medicating, drinking at home, starts with one glass of wine, comes three, comes a bottle, and then it's a bottle a week, two bottles a week. And, and I've seen that happen even with some of my own contemporaries. And I get yes. it. 
but uh, I had no idea that it was like epidemic at this level. So what is your, um, and we got two minutes left in this segment and then we'll come back, but what's your take on how we remedy this? We remedy it by saying to all those who are suffering, uh, our women, that there's help available, and we're a part of that help, and you can find us at FromBeerToTheBible.com. But don't be ashamed. The first step in getting help is to surrender and recognize that you need help. There is no shame. You are not alone. Alcoholism and drug addiction affects and impacts 90% of the people in the continental U.S., meaning it may not be you, Rich, but it's someone you know in your family, an right. uncle, an aunt, or cousin. And I want to tell people, there is help available whether you have insurance or you not, you do not, whether you have money or not. There is, if you want to be sober, there is a resource in people like myself that will help you find recovery and sobriety so you can live the life that God has planned for you to live. Well, I want to talk more about that, and we're going to talk about some of the impacts that alcohol abuse has and alcoholism and how that really looks, what it looks like. Because a lot of people, whether they're 30-somethings or 40-somethings, especially women, uh, are, are seeing an increase in this. And there's uh, new evidence saying that cancer is going up for people under 50 because of alcohol. And I want to know what some of the supports are. So if people are listening, and they, they can say, hey, you know what? Uh, I didn't know about this, and maybe maybe I have a problem, and they didn't realize that they had a problem. So uh, I want to talk about that. I also want to talk about the namesake of your organization, From Beer to the Bible, and talk a little bit about your own story. So uh, we're going to get to that straight ahead. I want to invite the audience to give a call if you want to join us. We're on with Irvin Lee uh, from Beer to the Bible, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night. With Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Welcome back. Listen to this. So there's a new study out. Cancer in people under 50 is now surging by 79%. They're blaming what they're calling the Western diet and alcohol. Now, the study uh, shows a steady increase in cancer cases amongst young people could be chalked up to red meat, salt, and alcohol, according to the study published on Tuesday in the BMJ Oncology Journal analyzed data, check this out, from 1990 to 2019, finding a 79% spike in new cancer cases in people under 50. This this uh, covers three decades of research. Using data from uh, many different sources, the researchers investigated the number of new cases, deaths, and subsequent health repercussions, as well as risk factors for people ages 14 to 49. In 2019 alone, early onset of cancer in that group totaled 3.26 million 
That was an increase of 79.1% since 1990. That's uh, shocking to me because, you know, you don't typically hear of people under 50 dying, and it might become a little more popular now. More people might know somebody under 50 that got cancer. Uh, But interesting to know that there might be a link to alcohol and eating red meat. Two things I like, right? I like a glass of red wine, Malbec from Argentina, and a good steak medium. So I'm going to have to limit those. But I want to welcome back our guest, Irvin Lee. He's the the founder of From Beer to the Bible, and we're going to talk about the, the name of that in a moment. But Irvin Lee, uh, what can you tell us about y- your your observation of, of this new statistic that cancer in people under 50 is spiked by 79%? Well, we see a lot of people who are, I'm going to say, in late, in, in late stage alcoholism that are suffering from cancer. More than I have seen, I would say, just five years ago, I've certainly seen an uptick uptick because people are not only drinking more daily if you look at the the statistics uh binge drinking is also going up so i'm going to say something that is a bit controversial alcohol thanks for saying it here (laughs) (laughs) alcohol is the true gateway drug alcohol is the true gateway drug well the media says it's marijuana, but you can find alcohol just about any time of day in any location in any street corner in the U.S., right? So mm-hmm. it's acceptable. It's socially okay for you and I if we were to go out at lunch and have four or five beers and go back to work. It's not the same with marijuana. So right. what has happened is The first thing that people turn to when they're stressed, life gets bad, they're happy, they're sad, they turn to alcohol. And now it is acceptable. You can get it delivered to your home. So people start to over-medicate. And a certain percentage of our population is just predisposed genetically to alcoholism. How does that work, being predisposed to alcohol? You're saying alcoholism, like their parents were alcoholics, and because they were, that they're already susceptible to it? Yes. So physically, so when I went to treatment, and they said, Irvin, you know that alcoholism is a disease. I was like, what? So you mean that I didn't come from God's factory faulty, or it's not an act of my will? She said, when you get out, go home and ask your mother who was the alcoholic in your family. Well, I did, and my mother replied very quickly, oh, it was your grandfather. I was like, what? The one that I knew, she said it was before you were born. So then I go back, and I look in my family, and I trace it back a few generations, and we have lost multiple men to alcoholism. We have also had multiple men have their lives derailed because of alcoholism. Now, my mom and her brothers and sisters, it skipped them. But do you realize that my cousin and I, my first cousin, we both fell into addiction at the same time, and we both ended up in treatment uh, at the same time. And by God's grace, we have both recovered. So if you see it, I I warn people, they they say that 60% of it is your genetics. If you see, 
a trend and a pattern in your family. I would say refrain from alcohol. If you can't refrain, I would definitely monitor how much I consume and how it affects me and how is it impacting my life, my job, my family, and my relationships. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that straight ahead. Folks, the number, if you want to give us a call, we're talking about alcohol, all things alcohol, 833-482-5337, 833-4VALDEZ. We're on with Irvin Lee, and we're about to find out why his organization is called From Beer to the Bible. And I'm looking forward to that story because I think this is a, a, an interesting topic that I think touches a lot of different aspects, and I'm sure a lot of people in the audience are intrigued by it as well. Folks, don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Welcome back. We're on with Irvin Lee. He's the founder of From Beer to the Bible. And we're talking about alcoholism and those that may have had uh, alcoholism in their family and might be predisposed to alcoholism and they should stay away is, is the word. And, you know, honestly, uh, I, I had a history of that in my family. And, and that for that reason, I didn't drink a lot. I mean, I probably did test every limit when I was like 21 and experimenting before 21. But uh, by 22 or 23, I can tell you, I was dry as a fish and probably stayed that way until I was in my 30s and my palate was more developed and I figured out, oh, I actually like wine now. And uh, that's been my go-to since. And, but I, I try to stay cognizant of the fact that you could become a wino just because, you know, you're not drinking, you know, Jack Daniels or whatever. That, that could still be the case. But there's always these great um, studies that come out that say, you know, a glass of wine a day is good for your this and good for your that. And it's got all this stuff. So, uh, you know, it, it sways me. You don't have to convince me to have a glass of wine a day. Irvin Lee, um, how dangerous is a situation like that? Uh, there are so many people that come into our ministry asking for help. It started with, I had a glass of wine every night, then it becomes two, then it becomes the whole bottle. And next thing they know, they're into full-blown alcoholism. So I would always say uh, moderation in watching yourself and knowing your family history. And when you seek and run to alcohol or any other drug for comfort, that to Mm -hmm. me is a red flag. That to me is the first stages. I want to chime back in because I I want you to finish your story. Uh, is there any way you could stick with us for a few more minutes in the next segment? Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, great. We're going to have a brief pause. We're coming right back with Irvin Lee and Open Phone America. Get those calls in, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Open phones and the continuation of our topic straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. 
live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, your liberty-loving Latino amigo. Happy to be here with you this Wednesday evening. Our phone number, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And I want to jump right into the phones tonight because we've had a number of excellent topics. And again, if you ever miss any of our guests, you can always catch them on demand. Rich Valdez, America at night.com. And uh, let's go to Ohio. Uh, no, excuse me, Idaho, Boise, Idaho. And we're going to check in with Paul on KBOI. Paul, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez and Irvin Lee. Thanks for taking my call, Rich. Appreciate it. I only caught about half of what your last caller was talking about, but I get the gist of it. Um, I can I can relate to what, what I heard. Definitely, I'm in recovery as well. I'm coming up on a on a birthday of we call them birthdays or or uh, um, anniversaries. Congratulations! Uh, thank you. Yeah, that's what we call them. Those those two things. And I'm coming up on a 30 year one, which wow. is on the 23rd of October. And I I never in my wildest dreams ever thought that I'd live this long. For one thing. To be clear, that yeah. long is beyond me. It's it's got to be a gift, a gift from the Creator, as far as I'm concerned. Because I've Amen. done very little, and uh, I've gotten re- reward after reward after reward because I give away with what I have been given, and that's the ability to help somebody else to find recovery. And when you realize that that's the way you have to do your program of recovery to give it away in order to keep it, then it kind of just falls right into place. It's amazing how that works. Outstanding. And what was your your, uh, comment or question for our guest, Irvin Lee? Well, I was just, I was wondering if if he's had any bouts with with, uh, relapse. All right. Good question. Irvin Lee, go right ahead. Yeah. First of all, thank you for calling in and thank you and congratulations on your long length of sobriety. No, I have not, but I will encourage anyone who has that sometimes, not always, relapse is a part of the process and the journey to your recovery and your healing. So don't be discouraged. You pick yourself back up and get back into your program and your rhythm of living, and you will soon recover. All right. Thank you, Paul, for the call. I appreciate it. And uh, America, welcome back. We're on with Irvin Lee. He's the founder of From Beer to the Bible. And Irvin Lee, in the next two minutes or so, tell us your story. How did you come up with the name of From Beer to the Bible? Well, I was sitting next to uh, a woman on a plane, an older woman on the plane, and I was drinking beer, 
and I was drinking a number of beers, and she didn't talk to me the entire flight. Right before we get ready to get off, she takes my drink napkin, and she starts writing on it. And I'm like, what is this about? And she says to me, here, son, you're going to have a ministry, and you're going to write a book called From Beer to the Bible. And I look at her, and this is what I said. I said, I'm not even with the Lord like that. I don't know how (laughs) that would ever happen, right? I said, she said, take this. So I took it, and 20 years later, here I am with a ministry called From Beer to the Bible. Um, This is the other part that's not going to make a lot of sense. I spent most of my career, almost 30 years, doing everything you could do with alcohol. I marketed, I sold it, I distributed it. I used to own liquor stores, and I've been addicted to it. And I tell people, if I can say that the guy who has literally done everything you could do with alcohol, that perhaps you should refrain from it, I think you should listen, because this isn't something I learned in a book. This is my lived, painful life testimony. Wow. That's amazing. Well, Irvin Lee, I mean, I think this is such a testament to, to A, you know, what, what the Lord can do with somebody, but B, what happens when you work the system and let the system work. So I want to yeah. thank you for joining us. Folks, check him out. Irvin, tell everybody quickly the website. Yes, you can find us at FromBeerToTheBible.com. That's FromBeerToTheBible.com. God bless you, Rich, and keep doing the wonderful work that you're doing. Thank you, brother. God bless you, too, and I appreciate the encouragement. Folks, we're going to continue with your calls and more straight ahead. Don't move a muscle. Again, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833 482 Welcome back, and I want to continue with our calls. Uh, We've got calls from all across the country, from Vermont to Chicago and elsewhere. Let's uh, go to WVMT, Burlington, Vermont, and check in with Bill. Hey, Bill, you're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. What a great show you have consistently, uh, Rich. Uh, Yeah, hearing uh, Mr. Lee, I tuned in late, but uh, the alcoholism uh, is a subject uh, I I spent uh, decades uh, working with. I, uh, in the seventies, I was privileged just, uh, I got a master's in counseling and then I was put in a job, uh, as uh, treatment director of a, 
uh, non-medical retreat facility uh, for recovery. And uh, the first meeting I went to, uh, I, I said they, they were talking about uh, the program, AA, and I said, uh, let's go to one of these. I want to see what's going on. The first speaker talked about meditating, which got my attention because I had committed to daily uh, access of that resource uh, in college, probably saved me from the 60s. Um, and I, I felt the power and value of it in my own life. Uh, ultimately, I did uh, a thesis on uh, AA's a cont- uh, transpersonal aspects of alcoholism and its treatment. AA is a contemporary wisdom school, and uh, it was interesting earlier when you when uh, uh, your uh, Mr. Uh, he was he was talking about the GAO and all the government things. Oh, I, yeah. I, Grover Norquist. I, I love yes, yes. Uh, I love quoting uh, Iran Corporation. Uh, study. They were hired by the federal government to evaluate uh, all the drug and alcoholism treatment programs they were funding. Uh, some years ago, this is already. And the distillation of the findings were, to paraphrase it closely, if your program lacks a spiritual component, it's a waste of money. Uh, in the 70s, in the profession's uh, uh, meditation is like a dirty word. Now there's so much uh, empirical validation, and uh, 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 it's just, uh, you know, I find life challenging. I want all the help I can get, and we all want, we all yearn for respect, love, uh, to feel valued, to feel whole, to feel uh, connected maybe with something bigger. And the many therapeutic aspects to AA, uh, of course, it's uh, not perfect, it's not for everybody, but it's the most mass effective treatment to date for this, this uh, brutally addictive uh, disease for those that fall into it. And uh, when I was in my 20s, you know, the professions uh, didn't uh, appreciate it enough. And right. uh, all these professionals, a lot, of, a lot of them, there was no real focus, and a lot of people were not helped. And then they get together in a, with a group of lay people and uh, figure a way of uh, accessing a higher power of their personal understanding. That's, the, to me, the core brilliant, thera- most brilliant therapeutic component of many. There's many therapeutic aspects to the program. But uh, it could be that many atheists recovered people from every religion. Uh, I went to a meeting in South Asia, all over the world. What's going on? Uh, so, so aligning themselves with uh, a personally meaningful uh, uh, Yeah, I think I, source I think it's, right. You, you need a a, a, like you're saying, a personally meaningful uh, experience in order to, to make it really work, something tangible and, and faith um, has to be a part of it. And if that spiritual component's missing, it makes sense. And it's good to know that our government did that type of auditing on on these types of programs because um, 
it shows that they're working, or at least they were at that time. I don't know if they're that effective anymore. Uh, but really interesting um, point of view, and I, I appreciate the compliment as well, Bill. I appreciate it. Big shout-out to you and everybody listening in Burlington, Vermont, on WVMT. I really appreciate it. I want to go to this clip of Mitch McConnell in a quick shift of the gears. Listen to this. What have doctors said is the precise medical reason for those two freeze-ups? What Dr. Monahan's report addressed was concerns people might have that some things that happened to me did happen, but they didn't. And they said, really, I have nothing to add to that. I think you pretty well covered the subject. What do you say to those who are calling on you to step down? Do you have any plans to retire anytime soon? <laughs> I have no announcements to make on that subject. But what do you say to those who are... I, I'm going to finish my term as leader, and I'm going to finish my Senate term. So that's Senator Mitch McConnell, the uh, minority leader of the Senate, saying he's not quitting his job, he's going to continue, he's going to go right ahead. The doctor's giving him a clear, clean bill of health, and everything is hunky-dory. And, you know, I think there's many of us that see what's going on, and I, I just want him to be well, and I'd prefer if he would retire and be well in Kentucky. I think that would be good. But I, I really do, I want him to be well, and I don't want somebody that's not healthy to, to be in that capacity or in the capacity of president or anything else. You know, if it's something brief, if you're sick and get better, great, keep doing your job. But if it's something that is going to be a long-term um, ailment or impediment, we can't do that. Let's go to Diane in Chicago, WGN. Diane, you're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome. Hi, hi, Rich. Hi. Um, there's an article in the Sun-Times by a professor called Anand Kumar, his, his, his title, the article is about people have a right to know about the physical, mental fitness of aging politicians. Now, here's a professor giving his opinion. And here's where I'm getting at the opposite side, the invasiveness and, um, if you want, like, nosiness, the, the power of what we call, like, a they, right? Like, they, or the royal we, like in there, he says. Um, we also have scientifically proven clinical lab measures of assessing overall health and of it. Harmonizing the two of what he's explained above, harmonizing the two, bringing objective methods to clarify, providing transparency, transparency and informing the public about their What's health. What's your take on what the, the professor is saying that we have a right to know? Do you agree mm -hmm. that we should know or do you think McConnell deserves privacy? No, here's the idea, the knowing. In, in the, it's, it's the, a call, we have a call to identify individuals where he says, this is not a call for widespread cognitive testing and brain scanning of every older adult aspiring for high office. Far from it. It is, however, a call to identify individuals who are at higher risk. Now picture yourself as one of those individuals. You don't want zeroing in on you by an entity that we all we are getting to be worshipful of this entity, the they, the we, the knowing. That's an arrogance, and that is that elitism. It sounds right, and it sounds sensible, and these are intelligent people. But I say, let the people decide, period. How horrible is it if the person has whatever, and even and people say there's somebody 90 years old, and then they decide then to resign or not. But that's their choice, and that's um, the individual liberty. Now, in the final paragraph, he says, honesty and thoroughness 
in medicine are what we seek for family members and others close to us, surely we can extend this approach to public officials. No, leave it at the family members and people close to you and people who see each other day by day, that we don't need to extend it to the public officials as if we are going to be assessing them, never mind that we're not being assessed. The people in the spotlight are already being assessed by each individual, but we don't need a collective assessment that's going to be uh, dictatorial toward who can, who's, who's good or bad or being identified by medical uh, people who, who even this is a professor, so he's a professor of psychiatry. Well, okay, so he is a medical person. He's talking about what we, ha- we have several you know, ways to be, even though he says they're harsh and intrusive as they may sound, we're living in an era where we, you know, we can do these things. Right. Well, Diane, here's what I think. I think that um, the professor brings up a point that, that's worthy of debate. Uh, but I, I get where you're coming from saying, look, the people decided to elect Mitch McConnell and it should be the people that decide to get rid of Mitch McConnell because that's how our system works. And we don't want to create a system where we now have this litmus test that says, hey, look, you're going to have to pass this cognitive test because um, now the they that you're talking about has the ability to fudge with the test and say, you know, you're not really up to par. You're not up to snuff. You're not doing what you got to do. And even if you don't, like, just imagine the shoes on the other foot and they say, oh, you know what? We're going to have Trump take the test. Oh, Trump failed the test. Got to get rid of Trump. He's going to have to go. Right. And I see how that can be weaponized against the people and the will of the people in their election of said uh, politician. So uh, I would I would agree with that statement um, in so much as I think the media also has a right that people have a right to ask these questions and to, to put that pressure on there. And, and that's what I support. I support the free speech aspect of it. Ask all the questions you want. Do I think we need to add more laws? I don't think I'm sold on that just yet. Um, you know, it, it makes sense in theory that we should have a cognitive test. But the question becomes, this is the equivalent of a red flag law, right? Where it's like, well, I think so-and-so is out of control. I think so-and-so is beating his wife. Take his guns away, right? It, it, it can be abused and it can hurt people and it can infringe on their rights. And people do have a right to run for office and people do have a right to respond to questions about their fitness Uh, but it doesn't remove their right to serve. So I I get where you're at, and that's why Feinstein is there. And I think all we can do is put the public pressure out there, educate the public, and let them know, hey, this is not working out. Diane, thank you for your call. Chicago WGN. Folks, the rest of your calls and more coming up. Don't go anywhere. I am Rich Valdez. Rich Valdez, our phone number, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. If you want to get in, get in now before it gets too late for me to get to your calls. Uh, but I want to continue our journey across the country to our callers, and we're going to go to Alabama, Dothan, Alabama. 
uh, and check in with Sandra on WDBT. Sandra, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Hey, thank you. Tonight I tuned you in late, and you had a gentleman on there talking about states that could uh, do away with their state income tax. Is that right? Yes, that is accurate. We were on with Grover Norquist. He's the uh, president of uh, Americans for Tax Reform. Okay, well, I read an article that says that all the states, if you gathered up their debt, would be over a trillion dollars. I don't know how many people know what a trillion dollars is. I don't know. I've seen a million dollars on a table, but what a trillion dollars looks like, I don't know. But if they did do this, and there are some states that that don't have state income tax now— what And he said there would be competition then in states like where you would move to. Well, wouldn't these states have to raise their sales tax, their real estate tax, their driver's license, or anything that you uh, paid tax on? Did he say anything about that before I tuned you in? No, he didn't. But I, what I can tell you is the majority of these states that are doing that um, – usually uh, take on this position that if you take less of people's money, they'll spend more of it. It's very similar to the Trump tax cuts or the Bush tax cuts or the JFK tax cuts, the Reagan tax cuts. Uh, all of them, when they reduced tax rates, uh, the, the government receipts on taxes went up because more people spent more of their hard-earned money because they were able to keep more of their money. So in the same way, you've got like Tennessee, um, Texas, Florida that I know of, uh, and there's others. He said there were seven. But just using those three as an example, they all have a, a sales tax at 6 or 7%. And what ultimately happens in a, in a situation like that, as I would surmise it, is you, you have people that are willing to take less people away from uh, – less money away from the people, and they're also looking to – give more power to the people by having a smaller government. And when you have a place like New Jersey, for example, where there's a lot of tax and there's a lot of tax on tax, what, what ultimately happens is it, the government becomes used to getting that money. And when they're used to getting this, this, all this extra money, the income tax money, the whatever tax money, the whatever they can do, they, they're, they're happy to spend it. And you have a more bloated government. So if you can run a leaner, smaller, more efficient government and have a 6 or 7% uh, tax rate on sales, uh, super, right? Uh, ultimately, you don't need to raise your income tax. You just offer less stuff. And you, you don't have as large of a government. And I think that's ultimately the goal. So I think the, the competition exists where people would say, oh, okay, so I live in New Jersey and it's six and a quarter percent sales tax here, but then I'm also paying, you know, I don't know, 15 or 20 percent in my income um, plus the federal uh, income tax where I'm getting taxed on my income at the state level and the federal level. Um, Tennessee's looking really, really good to me right now or, you know, Florida's looking really good to me right now. And and when people are in that situation, then you go to Florida and now you're only paying federal income tax. Now you have all this money left over that you would have been paying to the state of New Jersey for you to spend on the local economy, which is going to get taxed on sales tax. Uh, so it's, it's a win-win in my, uh, in my opinion. I think it's a great thing. And of course, uh, it's a good question because if the answer to that question is not the one I gave and the answer is sure, you don't want to pay income tax. No problem. We're just going to have you pay 30% in, 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 in uh, sales tax. Then of course you're losing any gains you may have made. 
And I think the idea is for you to have the, the ability, the liberty, the freedom to make the choices uh, in spending how you'd want to make them. So I think that's uh, how I come down on that one, Sandra. Okay. Well, I was just thinking because of all the debts that are in all these states, every state has a terrific amount of debt. And I'm like, well, if you start cutting that out, I would think the debt would go up. Although I understand what you're saying is it puts more money in people's pockets and they can spend more. But I don't know if that would balance out. But I wanted your opinion and I didn't hear the whole uh, segment of his. So I thank you for that information. Oh, it's my pleasure. And again, anytime you miss a segment, uh, you can always go to the website, Rich Valdez, America at Night, and you can check out the whole show. Since we're still on the air, that show won't be up till probably about 1.30 or 1.45 or 2 a.m., uh, Eastern time, but about an hour after the show, it's usually available on the website. So I encourage you to take a look there and we're going to get to the rest of your calls. Thank you, Sandra. I appreciate you. Big shout out to everybody in Dothan, Alabama, WDBT. And we're coming back to your calls and more. We're going to go to Myrtle beach, South Carolina, right when we come back. This is America at night with rich Valdez. Call now 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Welcome back. We continue with your calls as we travel across, uh, traverse across America, getting your opinions on all the hot topics of the day. Again, the phone number 833-4-VALDEZ. Let's go to Gretchen. She's in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, WRNN. Gretchen, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Well, thank you, Rich. I'm calling to compliment you on your style of broadcasting. Your voice is very soothing. And, you know, I'm not a Republican, but I listen to you because you speak moderately and reasonably and softly and decently, and I really appreciate that because many, many folks on this particular station do a lot of hollering, and I I really appreciate your style. So that's one thing I want to say. That's kind of you. I save the hollering for my children, by the way. That and people in front of me when I'm driving. Oh, good. I do that also. I'm a very, I'm a good person, but I do it too. But anyway, I just wanted also to mention that uh, to get your opinion on. Um, I, I missed the first few minutes of your show on um, alcohol issues, but I wanted to uh, get your opinion on all of the uh, beer corporations, beer commercials that accompany uh, sports on TV. You know. Um, uh, football games, uh, just about every kind of uh, sport you can think of has a, has a sponsor that is alcohol-related. So that's an issue. You've got all these great young athletes, very healthy, decent kids doing very well in their sports, and then they're, they're just uh, um, 
just having to hear all about beer and how great it is. So what do you think about that? Well, I'll tell you this. I'm not a big beer drinker, but I will say this. I think that uh, I believe in the free market and I believe in individual responsibility, individual liberty. So I think, you know, if, if you want to advertise whatever is legal that you can advertise, go right ahead. I, I know that people like to have a, an ice cold beer when they're at a game or three or six and, and they enjoy themselves. And for some people, this is a family outing. For others, it's just a sporting event with their friends. But whatever the case is, if that's the celebration they want to have, and I, I celebrated my birthday one year at, I think it was at Mets Stadium or Yankee Stadium. My brother had a, a box there, and it was a great time. And I, I don't think I even had beer, honestly, but but uh, they had amazing wings, and it was great. And the point I'm making is everybody's free to advertise because that's just how life works. I think um, the, the government has taken the appropriate steps, I think, to, to let people know, like, if you, if you buy a beer, it's right on it. If you buy cigarettes, it's right on it. There's a warning. There's a Surgeon General's warning, this can hurt you this way, this way, and the other way. I think people ultimately have to be responsible for themselves. Parents have to be responsible for their children to raise them right, to make those decisions. And I think if we were, like, advertising fentanyl, I'd say, man, well, you know, unless they're targeting doctors to use this, you know, appropriately in, 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 a, in a medical setting, that might be, um, you know, the advertising of an illicit drug, which it's not the case. But uh, this is why we don't advertise prostitution in states other than like Nevada where it's legal. So I think, you know, it, it's a free country. Do what we got to do. And it's really incumbent upon us as the people to, to do what's right for us. And if we, you know, we find ourselves in a situation like even gambling, right? You advertise gambling on television, but every 15th commercial is a commercial saying, you know, if you or someone you know has a problem with gambling, call 1-800-GAMBLER, right? And so I think there's resources there that are available. And I'm sure people could argue against me and my opinion on this, but I don't think that we should ever stifle the free market because that would require the government to stifle the, the free market. And, and that's the last thing we want, right? So it's kind of like, you know, uh, I may not want to hear anybody say, I hate you and I think you're ugly and your mother smells bad, right? Those are all mean things. But I think we all need to have the right to say what we have because without the right to say those things, then we lose our right to freedom of expression and free speech. So it's a double-edged sword and it's, it's a coin with two sides. And uh, we just have to be responsible as people to, to do the right thing with what we have. Gretchen. Yes. Well, thank you. I just have to end with this. My, my dad's 100 years old and he wow. thinks we should, he thinks we should bring prohibition back. <laughs> He's the cleanest living guy you'll ever meet. And it's very funny because we, we discuss that issue quite a bit, but he, he talks about the incredible heartache that this, that alcohol has caused families and individuals through many, many years. So I understand what you're saying, and I understand what my dear dad is saying, too. Yeah, and you know, to that point, I can tell you, um, I, I grew up with somebody who was an alcoholic, and it always impressed, and this was a wonderful human being, but it, it, somebody that was really afflicted by this. And um, and it was, for me, it was like, when you grow up, don't do that. So I, I've always kind of shied away from alcohol. Now I'm in my 40s, and I feel like I've learned how to, have a glass or three of wine responsibly and, and enjoy libations that way. But I had a friend, a very, very close friend of mine who, who couldn't, and he went through a divorce and he turned to, to drinking and going out and hitting bars. And 
That became drinking by himself. That became drinking on the job. And ultimately, I think right before he turned 40, I think he was 39, um, he went into cirrhosis and, and he died a very violent death. Very, very violent. I mean, just on his own, by himself. You know, the cirrhosis had taken full swing of his body. His liver had just disintegrated into little pieces and and it literally, like, through projectile, this is very graphic, and forgive me, but, like, projectile vomiting uh, of blood, just your esophagus begins to bleed. It, it's a horrible thing. And another f- mutual friend of ours found him after he was deceased by a few hours uh, in his place of business where he'd been living. And he was a barber. And it, it was just terrible. And so I've seen that as well, and I, I've seen the, the, the problems that it can cause, and it rips families apart. But I feel like that is one's own fault. It's kind of like saying, you know, I met somebody who was killed by a gangster and shot him with a gun. I could never sit here and say that we shouldn't have guns. No, we shouldn't have gangsters, right? And we shouldn't have alcoholics. And, and, and if we have people that have these problems, we have to help them as best we can. I don't know that limiting advertising w- would help that. But uh, kudos to your dad, number one, for turning 100 and living such a clean life. God bless him. And... Um, these are things we have to continue to talk about. And that's why there's programs like this where we can have these, these uh, discussions. Gretchen, thank you for the compliment and for your very kind phone call. I really appreciate it. Folks, there's more to come straight ahead. It's America at Night with me, Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Congratulations on this amazing show. I know you've worked so hard in the industry, and nobody deserves it more than you do. So I'm happy to see you really succeeding here. It's awesome. America at Night with Rich Valdez. Let me explain to the press. I've been tested again today. I'm clear across the board. But they keep telling me because this has to be 10 days or something, I got to keep wearing it. But don't tell them I didn't have it on when I walked in. That's President Joe Biden, who's been exposed to COVID because his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, has it. And he was at a uh, ceremony. And you've seen this all over the news. I don't want to beat a dead horse here. But he walked away from this 81-year-old person that he just placed the Medal of Honor on. He had a mask on. He took it off. Yada, yada, yada. And what's interesting here is the hypocrisy, right? They, they, they say they do this, then they don't do that. And, and I think it's interesting uh, because I'm pretty sure Biden is probably gargling with horse dewormer right about now, now that the CDC says that ivermectin is an effective uh, treatment for uh, COVID-19. And, um, and he's probably on hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic as well. Uh, but they probably won't tell you that. Again, that's my speculation. But... Karine Jean-Pierre comes to the rescue to say that, well, well, let me let me set the facts straight. She doesn't really set anything straight. Check this out. He left as planned, as it was planned. Uh, he left uh, when there was a pause in the program in order to minimize 
to minimize his close contact with attendees uh, who are uh, who are about to participate in a reception. And I, I, you all reported that, noticed that he left uh, uh, when there was a pause in the program because, again, he wanted to minimize uh, certainly uh, uh, his impact on folks who were there. Now, if what Karine Jean-Pierre is saying is true, then he's breaking the CDC guidelines, right? Because they don't say uh, make sure you put a mask on while you walk through the room. And then when you're right next to somebody, like breathing on their ear as you're attaching a metal to their neck, you get to take your mask off, right? Uh, Clearly, this was a gaffe, and she's trying to cover it up. She's literally admitting that he's not following the rules. And it's just uh, fascinating to me that that they're, instead of saying, you know, we all make mistakes, folks. We, We, it was my bad. We messed up. But they uh, they they won't do that. And when pressed on it, this is the uh, the uh, response from Jean Pierre being pressed on it by Jackie Heinrich at the press briefing. Listen to this. We've asked a lot about the president's use of a mask and CDC guidance, but I want to ask about CDC guidance specifically um, because there is you know going into the fall, kids going back to school. CDC still recommends universal indoor masking for kids in school, students, staff. Um, and it seems out of step with some of the studies around the usefulness of masks for kids. There was a piece in The Atlantic, and I'll just read you a quote from it. It says, we reviewed a variety of studies, some conducted by the CDC itself, some cited by the CDC as evidence of masking effectiveness in a school setting to try to find evidence that would justify the CDC's no end in sight mask guidance for the very low risk pediatric population, particularly post-vaccination. We came up empty handed. So especially with the president going to Congress to ask for more money for a new vaccine and more money for the CDC, should we keep funding the these studies if the CDC is not making guidance that follows the results of those studies? Here's what I'll say. Uh, We did something that the last administration was incapable of doing, which is putting to forth a strategy to really, truly deal with COVID-19 and this pandemic. They were incapable of doing that. We put forth a comprehensive plan, and we are now in a different place than we were two years ago, a year ago. We are in a much better place to fight COVID-19. And we have the tools, and that includes masking. That includes uh, vaccinations. That includes Karine Jean-Pierre not being able to answer the question, right? Because she didn't answer the question, which was, uh, should we keep funding these studies if the CDC is not making guidance that follows the results of the studies that they funded? Better yet, I'll say, should we keep perpetuating this nonsense. The studies are clear. If the president isn't going to follow the guidance and host a super spreader, right? Because that's what they would have said if it was Trump or anybody else other than Biden. So I say fake, phony, and fraud. They're full of it. And uh, the music means they're kicking me out of here for the next show to come in. And it's been my pleasure, as always, to be with you this evening. Hasta la próxima. Until the next time, take care, good night, and God bless. I'll be back with you guys tomorrow, God willing. Until then, keep it locked right on this station. There's more programming coming on after me, and you don't want to miss that. That's all I've got, folks. Hasta la próxima.
Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. 